everyone. Thanks for joining our third Lean Startup webcast. Today's topic is bringing Lean to established companies. I'm Melissa Tinatigan, the executive producer of the Lean Startup Conference, which is coming up on December 9 to 11. Please visit leanstartup.co for more information. First, can everybody hear me? Great. Looks like everybody can hear me. Our speakers today are Eric Rees, Brent Cooper, and Patrick Vlaskovitz. Eric is the author of the book, The Lean Startup, and the co-host of the Lean Startup Conference. Brent and Patrick are co-authors of The Lean Entrepreneur and are both speaking at the upcoming conference. They co-founded Moves the Needle Group, which has advised the innovation practices of Fortune 100 companies. A few housekeeping notes. We'll take questions from the audience via the live chat. If you'd like to ask a question, please flag it by starting with a Q colon before asking the question. Again, that's a Q colon. This is a 45 minute program and the recording will be available a few days after this live webcast. Take it away guys. Everybody for logging in, I've just been looking at the list of countries that we have people coming from. We got a lot of time zones represented, so thanks especially to everybody who is uh, watching us at a very strange hour and not the very convenient Pacific time that we are in this morning. Uh, I hope that most of you uh, who are on this webcast are, are at least somewhat familiar with the topic we're going to talk about because we want to spend as much of today really getting into the advanced nitty-gritty details of what it actually looks like, if I can be so bold as to say what the mess looks like when we actually try to bring these innovation practices into established companies that aren't always ready for them. Um, but I think it's important just to, to give a little bit of background uh, for those that are completely new to Lean Startup, uh, as well as people who are new to me, Patrick, and Brant. And so, um, first, I thought I would start with a little background. Uh, you guys may have noticed because we have you know a gazillion people signed up for this webcast that um, Lean Startup has become somewhat popular uh, in the last few years, for which, of course, we are very grateful. But it wasn't always this way. <laughs> Well, when I did my very first public event about Lean Startup, there were not 1,000 people on a webcast. There were five people around a breakfast table. Okay, so uh, we have come a long way in the last uh, in the last five years, pretty much. And those of us who were crying into the wilderness about this set of ideas at the beginning remember very fondly the people who were brave enough to be early adopters to say, "Hey, this this sounds pretty good, and we should take it seriously." Because now it's popular, but but then you had to be pretty nuts. So I have a tremendous fondness for Brant and Patrick, who were, were two of the earliest uh, thought leaders to take this on and to start grappling with it and writing about it and making it accessible to a whole new generation of entrepreneurs. Um, they wrote a, a really great book called The Entrepreneur's Guide to Customer Development, which at the time it was written was the only readable book on the subject that existed in the whole world. So a lot of people became uh, introduced to the concept through, through that book. And of course, uh, they recently wrote uh, the New York Times bestseller. Am I right, guys? Yep. They're called The Lean Entrepreneur uh, with, with illustrations by Fake Grimlock, for those that know who that is. And, of course, I was very honored to, to write, the, write the foreword. And what Brad Patrick and I and, of course, many others have been trying to evangelize the last few years is that there is a better way to do innovation than the historical, traditional way. It's called Lean Startup because we're taking ideas from lean manufacturing around uh, better cycle time, getting closer to customer, controlling batch size, but applying them to the process of innovation itself trying to make entrepreneurship into more of an established discipline. In fact, we go so far as to say that entrepreneurship is the management discipline that deals with situations of high uncertainty. So when we don't know what we don't know, then it's very likely that we're going to have to pivot or make a change in strategy without abandoning our vision uh, along the way. And so if you know you're going to have to pivot along the way, why not try to get to that moment a little bit sooner? So that's the message that we started out talking to uh, you know, traditional startups about, guys in a garage, venture-backed startups here in Silicon Valley. That's, of course, my background. And then in the last couple of years, this funny thing has happened where we have started to get interest in Lean Startup from some of the world's biggest companies. And at first, when people hear that, they're like, that doesn't make sense. You know, well, we're talking about innovation, uh, getting closer to customers. That's really for startups. What, what do big companies know about it? Big companies are slow bureaucratic, you know, monstrously large, constantly being disrupted. We don't think of them as the disruptors. But what we believe in the Lean Startup community is that anyone who's facing conditions of extreme uncertainty is an entrepreneur no matter what it says on your business card. And therefore, you know, we were kind of willing to take on the challenge to say, what could it look like 
to take these ideas into an established company. And here's the funny thing that, I, that I've observed, and then and I want to get Patrick and Brandt to, to dive in on this topic. What I have seen, I have met now the CEOs of some of the biggest companies in the world, and I still spend time with the CEOs of you know, high-growth Silicon Valley-style companies you know, from the garage on up. And what all of those people have in common is they are seeking out new sources of, of sustainable growth. A lot of ways to get unsustainable growth, you know, big PR campaign, M&A, uh, Super Bowl ad, Ponzi scheme, all are sources of growth. But what we care about in the innovation community is sustainable growth, growth that is driven by customers and creating value for them. And we just so happen to think that the best way to create sustainable growth in our you know, highly disruptive world is through continuous innovation. So that's our slogan, sustainable growth through continuous innovation. And that challenge I have seen to be uh, identical Depend, you know, no matter the size of the company, no matter the, the size of the PL, no matter how many public investors, et cetera. So that's, that's a little bit what we're going to talk about. Now, unlike a lot of other webcasts that people have tuned into, we're not going to lecture at you. I've now done all the lecturing that's going to be done. Uh, we really want this to be a conversation. Uh, and so we're going to keep this very informal, very casual. Uh, ask your questions in the chat, and we will do our best to answer them. Um, and we're going to try to tell it like it is and not give you the scripted, you know, uh, antiseptic answers. Right, guys? That's right. All right. Uh, and that's what I like about Patrick and Brandon. They're very, what's that? They tell it straight, which I, really, which I really appreciate. So maybe a good place to start. What, what was your experience like the first time you started to get calls from, you know, not your everyday traditional startup uh, asking about Lean Startup? Like what was that, what was that experience been like? Well, so it's, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, they've come from all sorts of uh, – places inside of the large organizations, but usually uh, it's either somebody that has innovation in their title or it's somebody whom the CEO is handpicked and says, listen, we've got to do things uh, differently. We've got to do things in a different way. And, and I think that it's the galvanizing force usually is that there's a, uh, a C-suite executive that, that gets it. They've read they probably read your, your book, Eric, and, and they're saying, listen, we've got to do things differently, and, and they get the marching orders going. And I guess what's interesting to me about it is that the companies that, that tend to reach out to us are the ones that have that C-suite executive, and then they have these grassroots people inside the organization that are actually already doing it at some level. They come from a, an agile uh, development team, or they come from uh, design thinkers, perhaps, Mm -hmm. um, uh, people that they're out there doing it kind of already. This is like classic early adopter territory, right? They're uh -huh. actually already trying to solve the problem. And I think that they, they, they hear about uh, the different methodologies and they want some direction and they want some, some hands-on learning. And, and that's where Patrick and I can help. One of the things that I see time and time again, a story that Brent and I hear, and, I, and I'm guessing Eric, you hear it as well, is you have large successful organizations, um, you know, uh, generating you know big profits, huge margins, and usually someone in the C-suite they realize, you know, in this new environment we're in, where you know literally thousands of startups are being launched every day, and quite a few at their own space, at their own domain. Yeah, most of them are going to fail, but it only takes one with the right backing, uh, with the right strategy, right execution to take them down at the knees. And that's usually, you know, to use a phrase, um, uh, you know, sort of a galvanizing force, force within the organiza organization saying, look, we need to become faster. We need to become more agile. We need to become more lean because uh, we can't rest on our laurels. You know, and I think you tweeted an article the other day about, I think it was from the MIT Technology Review, about the compression of company lifespans, right, on the S&P 500. And I think it speaks exactly to that, that real uh, concern uh, that, that uh, large organizations have. Yeah. I once got a call from an innovation expert at some company. You know, they were tasked with their, uh, from their CEO to go interview a bunch of innovation experts and put together like a recommendation about innovation or something. And so I'm like on their list of people they have to call and they, they call me up and they say, okay, why is it important for company X to innovate? This is one of the best known brands in the world, you know, long, long standing history as a company, you know, great company. And I said, um, because if you don't, then company X will die. 
and they were like laughing at me, like, come on, you know, seriously, like, I know you're an innovation expert, but you have to say extreme things, but do you, you know, you seriously yes after our 100 year history of yet et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, yeah, I'm being 100% serious with you because I happen to know in your business, you know, I just, I had just met a startup that, you know, on, uh, as a class project in school, they had gotten, they had, you know, in six weeks, the, each of the students had been given like a budget of a thousand dollars or something. This student had put together a product that they had, they were selling in stores already that looked just like it was produced by this big company. I mean, the same level of quality of packaging, same like, and they were like, that's no big deal. If that product is successful, we'll just buy it. And I was like, nah, you don't understand. The story I'm telling you is not about one kid with a student project. I'm talking about <laughs> anybody in the world with a thousand bucks and six weeks to spend and a good idea can compete with you, you know, as a first class competitor. And, you know, uh, you can imagine this call didn't go very well because, you know, what I was supposed to tell you guys, I, I want to hear you guys tell me about this because, like, what my experience is most companies call up an innovation expert. What they want to hear uh, is, like, how do I find some more entrepreneurial people? Like, who do I fire? Um, like, what kind of posters should I put up on the wall to tell everyone to be more innovative? Like, people are looking for quick fixes. They're not really serious about making the kind of structural changes that are necessary to do this. Like, what do you guys see? Well, so I, I, it's not, I was just going to say, it's not even just startups, right? I mean, we're going through this major techno, technological transformation right now. And, and it's not just, uh, it's not just startups. It's actually companies all around the world that if they innovate more quickly than, than, uh, than you do can kill you. So I actually think that a lot of the the C-level executives or the people in here that that really want to do change is because they see the uncertainties. So they don't necessarily know what the answer is to that, but they see the uncertainty. And and I think that the tendency is to go to people hate this phrase, but people go to the old school innovation practices and the people that have been doing the innovation in a certain way for for ages. And I, I really see this around the globe. You know, they look to the U.S. as leaders, and you bring in you know, huge company uh, executives and, and government officials, and they're going to build these ecosystems for innovation. And it's all the old school mentality. And so I think that there's a comfort zone there and people are hiring uh, the same people or they're looking to the same people because innovation is hard. Disruption is hard. And if somebody can give you feel good, uh, feel good stuff, then, uh, then, you know, I think that we, we sort of naturally gravitate towards that in our, you know, we, we stay within our comfort zone. You know, how do you teach well, people you get, to, yeah, how do you teach people to get out of their comfort zone? Yeah, of course, we'd like to be in a comfort zone because we're human. How would you, so you talk about the old school innovation methods. How would you characterize the difference between the old way and the new way? Well, so it kind of depends on the company, but, uh, you know, People have been talking about having, you know, sort of incubators or labs for decades, right? So the way I describe this is the lab in the wilderness. And so you hire, uh, you put this lab out on the wilderness and you've got, you know, really brilliant scientists and physicists and engineers and they're, and they're tinkering away and, and they're actually doing real innovation out there. Uh, but they have no means of getting uh, the right technology to market because, they don't think in terms of startups. So there never is that step of trying to figure out whether anybody cares about that innovation or whether there's a product you can build out of that innovation that actually has a market. And so, you know, every once in a while, somebody from the management team kind of waltzes through the lab and, and does what I call the pick a winner approach, right? Oh, I like that one. I like that one over there and that one. And those become their funding strategy, right? It's because the senior executive is the internal visionary and can predict the future and so therefore chooses the, these pieces of technology. They invest real money into that technology just like, uh, you know, in the startup world, we have investors that will put real money into these companies that don't practice lean startup and they fail, right? And so this pattern is repeated over and over and over again. And so I think that the, the key learning is, yeah, you can go ahead and have that lab, but what are the steps to use validated learning instead of revenue? What are the <laughs> steps that you can get this company to prove that there's a demand for the product, there's market for a product, and then prove that there's a business model before, if ever, you bring it into the core business? So, okay, but 
why shouldn't, like just to play devil's advocate, like why is revenue not a good indicator for success? In an, we put a lot of money into research. Isn't the goal to get a high ROI, you know, return on that investment by having the research drive revenue? Well, I, don't, I think you might, you probably said it before I did, but you know, revenue can be a vanity metric, right? So if you, you could hire a sales guy can sell ice to Eskimo, right? <laughs> so that's not really proving that there's, you know, that there's really any value being created there or that there's a market there. So if you optimize your organization for producing revenue, you can actually do that at first. You can actually see a return and you're getting this false signal that there's actually something there. Often, uh, often, as you know, Eric, <clears throat> real disruptive innovation doesn't return revenue initially, right? And so looking for that signal, you're looking for a signal that's easy to measure, which is really what the organization is optimizing for. Um, and so when Brett and I speak to organizations about this, they ask typically, you know, Brett and I have sort of this running joke about this, the, the best way to do sustaining innovation uh, and not true disruptive innovation is to ask two questions. One is, what's the ROI? And uh, the other is, when am I going to see it? Yep. And what that, what that happens is the actual um, individual tasked with doing innovation very quickly returns to sort of known markets and, and, and uh, uh, known innovation, improving performance on, a, on a, a known dimension, which is fine, but it, let's, let's face it, it's not disruptive. Um, and, and using things like validated learning, startup uh, innovation accounting to actually measure progress on disruptive innovation is considerably harder. And most organizations, quite frankly, aren't yet structured uh, to handle that. Yeah. I see a lot of companies where the, the innovation, the, the basically all investment decisions are made through some kind of centralized uh, stacking process where every proposal is scored according to proposed ROI and then stacked. So if you want your innovation to be funded in the first place, the, the, you have two strategies. One is you pick something really conservative whose ROI is very easy to predict and choose something that's high, like you know, an, an incremental improvement to an existing product, driving down the cost so as to improve margins of some existing product. Basically, let's call that the Kodak strategy. Or you say, you know, listen, I, uh, I'm going to make this fantasy plan for my new innovation with a like hockey stick shaped graph and you know the product's going to serve every segment in the world simultaneously and we're going to do a massive launch but of course we can't do it for like five years so like I need a lot of money for the next five years with no accountability after which I promise you a million trillion dollars in revenue and those fantasy plans have really high ROI because fantasy always has a higher ROI than real life it's like your fantasy football team is always going to be better than your actual football team uh, so yeah so you get your fantasy plan you get it funded, and now your finance guy turns around and says, thank you for giving me this excellent accountability document. You just gave me a graph month by month of how much revenue I should expect for the next five years. So I'll, you know, I'll be looking at my watch, and I'll be waiting to see the ROI materialize. And so as soon as reality kicks in and the product is not as easy to get to market as we thought, you know, like real life is never as good as a fantasy plan. The first sign of trouble, the project gets canceled. Because if there's one thing we know in general management circles is if you don't do what you said you're going to do, you're fired. And so you have these companies that are actually investing a massive amount of money in innovation and getting no return on it because they either fund only things that are too conservative or they cancel things that are actually promising before they get canceled. So what have you guys seen companies do to get around that problem? Well, so I think that that's what... Uh I think what, what you have to do, again, this is why it, it takes a C-level executive, is, is that they have to be able to fund experiments. And, and so you, you have to have the, the person that's senior enough that says, okay, we're not expecting an immediate ROI on this. And so we're going to separate these entities out. Again, it could be sort of a lab or it could be, you know, some companies are still doing or are doing, you know, completely separate subsidiary entities. Um, but you're giving the money, you're forcing the company, you're saying, in a sense, you're saying to a business unit leader, you have to, you have to explain why you did not invest 10% or 15% of your budget onto experiments, right? And so the moment you can start getting people to talk about it in terms of funding experiments and realizing that then you're going to incrementally uh, invest more in, in those experiments that start showing promise, then I think that that's the that's what I've seen inside of the organizations that that have been you know are showing signs of success. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, me too. In the, in the old lean manufacturing days, they used to talk about what are the conditions necessary to do a lean transformation. And of course, they're talking about traditional, forget any of this uncertainty, just like the basics of getting companies to modify their supply chain so that it's just in time, uh, highly efficient, lower batch size. I mean, that's, that transformation was hard enough. They had a, a, a series of, of steps they call that, that I always remembered it with the acronym ACES, A-C-E-S, for acute pain. That is, the organization has to recognize that there's a problem. C for change agent, so some individual person tasked with driving the change. E for an executive sponsor, someone with sufficient organizational clout to provide air cover and support. And a sensei, because all the lean guys, you know, they came from Japan. So you need to, like, someone who's walked the journey before and who can provide you expertise and counsel but is not responsible day-to-day for the operation. So ACE is A-C-E-S. So what have you guys seen in terms of what does an organization need to look like to be ready to adopt lean startup? Well, so again, I, to me, it's the it's the executive sponsor, it's uh, and then it's the grassroots uh, people that are actually already trying these things. So typically, you know, we've been brought in because there's you know one person that has been given the the authority to uh, to try these uh, these lean startup principles out, and and so we start running them through a series of workshops. Or it's, hey, we've got this agile development team. So this is a classic story, Eric. We've got an agile development team. There's a product manager assigned, you know, is, is part of that team. And the product the product manager develops use cases, but doesn't validate any of the use cases, right? And and reasonable reasons, right? I mean, what's amazing about all of this uh, this innovation inside of large companies is people are actually making making rational rational business decisions. Sure. The product manager is going to lose his engineering resources if he doesn't have this use case and get these uh, these projects into cycle. And, and so he's worried about the timing and so he makes this stuff up. But so the team goes and develops, you know, a product very efficiently using Agile, but it's still a product that nobody wants because nobody's validated the use cases. <laughs> but it was so efficient. Yes, exactly. And so, uh, so those are instances where, you know, we could come in and, and show them rapid experimentation for the validation side of it. And so in those instances, we have the the engineering, the development team that's already functioning and actually wants this, right? I mean, this is what's amazing is when you find the right group of people inside of these large enterprises, they want to innovate, they want to succeed, they want to build products that people want. They don't want to just write code. They want to engineer solutions to problems, right? And so, so this whole lean startup thing becomes an empowering force for these employees who feel handcuffed right now, but we can actually take these handcuffs off and they get to... they actually get wins fairly quickly. That's what's amazing to me. And, th- and this is how an organization starts to change is if you can spend some time running through these cycles, doing experimentations, they actually, they're good at what they do. They're really intelligent people and they, and they get wins and they can start showing, you know, the middle management that you can get wins out of this stuff. One of the things that Brent and I counsel uh, large organizations is, uh, especially ones that have already embraced agile development is to extend the agile metaphor into the funnel, for example, and show the benefits of lean startup for the sales and marketing teams. Oh yeah. Um, and then show the benefits of lean startup to HR folks. It's not enough just to sort of you know pound your chest. We're doing lean, and everybody's got to get on board, right? That's a quick way to make some enemies internally. Yeah. Um, and so uh, again, uh, I actually one of the things I see quite often, I think Brant, and I'm guessing you see this as well, is uh, experiments, marketing, and sales and marketing experiments often you pick low-hanging fruit in the millions of dollars very, very quickly. Uh, And we've seen this time and time and time again. And that's how you get other parts of the organization, other functional roles excited about incorporating lean startup methods. Yeah, I like to visualize your modern, well-run corporation as a series of silos. And like, imagine you have the God's eye view and you can physically see the different silos, right? So you've got you know, product management, marketing, design, engineering, operations, QA, right? So you have all these different silos. Literally imagine them as a series of physical silos. And imagine you are a giant, you know, you're a behemoth. So you can grab a silo and like pop the top off like a Pringles can and look inside and see what's going on. And you open up, you know, the design silo, pop it off. And you're like, wow, look at this highly iterative design thinking. That's really cool. They're doing experimentation and learning from customers, a lot of learning going on. You pop the engineering top, we're like, look at agile development, right? You pop the marketing top, we're like, look, there's some customer development happening. 
like pop the operations topic. Like look at DevOps. If you have a supply chain guy doing lean manufacturing, like inside each silo, you're like, wow, we are highly iterative, uh, learning from customers, like testing hypotheses. This is going to be great. This must be a company that's built to learn for rapid experimentation. But then zoom out and you're like, uh-oh, every function in its silo is passing its deliverables one silo to the next in a purely linear waterfall fashion. So it's like each silo is convinced that the learning is finished when they're done with it and the next silo just needs to execute what they learn. But as you guys know, as soon as you hand someone a giant specification document as they go build this, the first day they have to make some unexpected trade-off between speed and efficiency or between you know, cost and footprint. And they're like, which one's more important? The spec says I should have both, but real life physics requires only one or the other. And now you have a new hypothesis that needs new experimentation, so the learning has to stop. So when I meet with the executives who work in companies like that, their life is a nightmare because every day of their life, the leader of one of those siloed groups comes to them and says, I can solve all your problems if you just put my silo in charge. Right? I'll, I know we just need to get everyone to do design thinking. We've got to get everyone to do agile. But of course, as soon as that guy leaves the room, the next guy comes in and says, you've got to get everyone to do, put my silo in charge. And if you read old, older school innovation books, several of them are quite explicit about just saying, listen, the solution to innovation is to put the designers in charge. And like, that would be great if everyone already agreed to that statement. But of course, the engineers don't feel that way, they think. Right. So what's funny is I've now worked with a number of companies where um, once they adopt Lean Startup, it gives them like a common vocabulary for all the different teams to use the same vocabulary, same business-oriented results, you know, uh, set of concepts to, to wrap all these techniques in. And so the people who run those silos, or who used to run those silos, so we knock the silos down. This is like, you know, from Braveheart, unite the clans, right? Like knock the silos down, get everybody on a single cross-functional team to say, look, you guys are a startup, not a bunch of functions. And you team, you five or 10-person team of full-time dedicated cross-functional resources, Go experiment and learn how to make this happen. So when teams are reorganized that way, they get so much more productive, so much more energized. Like the creativity that you unlock is incredible. But privately, they'll sometimes come to me and say, you know, I love Lean Startup because all we're really doing is like teaching the other functions how to do good marketing. Or like, it's really, isn't this just design <laughs> thinking but wrapped up in a new business-friendly or engineering-friendly language? Isn't this just agile repackaged? And I, when I have those conversations privately with people, I say, Every time, you're absolutely right. Good point. <laughs> you nailed it. But listen, do me a favor. Don't tell that to the guy in the other silo because he's going to be really upset. Let's just keep it between us, right? So we have like a secret joke where ev I swear to God, everyone thinks it's just their thing writ large. And hey, I'm perfectly happy for everyone to believe that as long as they get results, you know? I yeah. think that's another big change that I see is organizations move away from their internal, like an internal focus on their internal processes and structures and politics. And back to an external focus, I'm really saying, look, the way you hold a team accountable is not did they do their functions well, but did they drive results for the company? Did they create new sustainable growth through continuous innovation? Yeah, that's, it's, it's a great point. There was a, uh, a company that we helped that actually had an organization that even used this language that their team was in charge of running experiments. And so it's a great idea, right? And so, you know, you're, you're an employee, you've got a great idea. I know this is headed. Yeah, you fill out a form. You know, I think Steve Blank called this the permission to innovate form, right? And you put it into the – six months later, you get one loop back, right? One iteration. And like almost all experiments, right, you fail. I mean, you fail until you succeed is by definition, right? And so the first loop is a failure. So this employee goes, oh, okay, I'm done. Listen, six months to get a result for one iteration, I'm done. Never mind, yeah. And so the idea actually is to get, again, it's the cross-functional teams. I love it. You, you get them in within a weekend, two days, they're actually going and they're having multiple failures, but they're also then starting to tend towards a, a success and they, and they get these success indicators as well. So I, I, I think that... Um, it's awesome to see. Yeah. And I think, I think that it's the, you know, we tried to tackle in the book. It's kind of a tough subject, but the, you know, we're still taught in MBA school, these silos, Right. And if people can just imagine that the way we motivate people, the way we do performance reviews and incentivize people within silos, those measures cannot be drawn in a direct line to corporate objectives. You cannot yeah. draw a direct line to 
you know, reducing waste or to improving revenues or cutting costs. What, what we're doing is we're, we're saying that the managers have identified these are the practices that we must do that will hopefully result in that. But you can't draw a direct line. Right. Well, well, presumably they helped us be successful in the past. Right. And since the future is going to be just like the past, we're going to be fine. Right. Whereas the cross-functional teams, though, you can tie it to a metric, to a performance metric that has a d direct result in the corporate objectives. And that's like, that's yeah. the huge reorg so win if it happen. So yeah. liberating. All right. I want to take a quick pause here because we're going to start taking some audience questions. So please get your questions in if you want to you ask questions. We are very excited to talk about them. Uh, while you're thinking about questions, uh, and Brant, Patrick, I want to know if you guys have any questions. Like, what are the kind of traps and stuff that you guys have run into that you're, you're kind of currently thinking about? But just so everyone remembers, this is just a sneak preview of a conversation we hope to have in great detail at the Lean Startup Conference in San Francisco, December 9th through 11th. And uh, so please check out leanstartup.co to learn more. We are very excited to... Uh, put on what I think will be the biggest event in history uh, dedicated to Lean Startup. So anyway, just that plug is done. Please do check it out if you are interested. So Patrick Grant, what, what, what questions are on your mind? What do you guys, what do you guys want to know? Actually, I'll, I'll throw one out there. Um, I had a very interesting conversation with a very uh, successful and very uh, uh, intelligent person in the, uh, the media space. Um, and they, uh, they are, uh, this person's generally a, a large, a great fan of, of lean startup type thinking. And his bugbear was that often, what he didn't like about it is that testing, often real innovation tests very poorly at scale. And so, you know, he and his team, they knew they're doing some really interesting stuff, some really innovative stuff in the, in the media space. And, but they've also seen it that it tests very, very poorly. And we kind of had this conversation where I, I, I could see where he's coming from, and I'd love to have your take, Eric, on how to get around that. Uh, yeah. Again, this person is not a, a, a uh, you know, um, this person wasn't being uh, uh, aggressively critical. He was wanting to solve this problem, and I thought he had a very interesting yeah. point. Yeah, uh, it's a really important it's a really important point because what people really care about, you know, I, I like to joke that. Managers don't care about innovation. Let's just be honest. Okay, no one actually gives a shit about it. People want growth. Right? They want their stock price to go up. They want net new growth that, was not in, like, that is not anticipated by Wall Street, uh, not anticipated in the business plan, new growth. So, so the, it's, it's natural to say, well, then the right thing to do is to say, like, you know, what are the indicators of growth? Market share. I want to take share from my competitors. Okay, that's great. But market share, like high margin profits, those are, are trailing indicators. Those are like the last thing that happens after you win in a disruption. So if you're impatient for those things to happen, you're not in good shape. So, so one way to think about what we call learning measures or innovation accounting is we're trying to figure out for an experiment that matters, what are the leading indicators of things like market share? So I'll give you an example. I was working with a company that sells through retail uh, physical products. And they, they have today, they're going into a market where they currently have 5% share. But they, they think that they can get new, uh, you know, new growth because they can drive that 5% share up because they have better technology. Like lo and behold, the better technology has not yet produced any kind of wins for them because just having new technology doesn't matter because customers don't know about it. Uh, you guys will be shocked to hear this, I'm sure. So, all right, you want to have market share. What are the leading indicators of market share? All the metrics that they're used to using really have not been going well for them. They're used to looking at revenue, margin, total orders, um, you know, what we call the vanity metrics, really. And so they're like, well, we want to go to actionable metrics, but how do we do that? Like, what metrics should we pick? And the, the, when people are struggling with measures, my feeling is that they're not clear about what their strategy really is. So to me, it always starts with what's the vision? Our vision is this better product can really catalyze this kind of customer for this reason. Like really do something great for this customer. It's hard to tell the story protecting this company's confidentiality, so it's a little bit awkward. I'm sorry. What's your strategy? I mean, literally, our strategy is we are going to put a product in a store next to our competitor's product, where today, when a customer walks up to the display, 95% of the time, they go for the competitor. In my new world, more than 5% of the time, I want them to turn and look at my thing. So first leading indicator is literally what is consumer preference as expressed in a store between the displays for the two products. 
And let's actually go run some experiments where we build a prototype early, you know, minimum viable product of that proposed new solution. In this case, I had this company manufacture first three of them, not three lines, not 300, not three million, three individual units. We put them in three stores and tried to measure the leading indicators. Then we said, okay, what's the next leading indicator? Okay, so someone walked up to the display. If we can't even get people to like look at our product, then it doesn't matter what's inside, the problem's on the surface. Let's keep iterating and get that number to go up. The next leading indicator is maybe they open it up and check it out and you know investigate it. You know, again, like a mid-tier indicator would be on a per customer basis, they're willing to buy it. So those are like metrics that predict future market share. Here's my caveat though. If you just use those measures on their own, you will not be successful because finance doesn't care about learning. You can't deposit learning in the bank. You can't put learning in your annual report. You can't disperse it to shareholders. Learning actually kind of sucks as a measure. So we have to master the math of innovation accounting that lets us translate those early learnings into net present value terms for um, future business case. And that's such a complicated topic. There's no way we can do it justice like right now. So I'm just going to say, look, for those people who are actually serious about this problem and have this, you need to go learn about innovation accounting. You need to learn the math. But we're not going to get into that now. Is that helpful? Yeah, that's great. All right. The questions from the audience are pouring in. Um, let's start with this first one. How do you determine if your corporate culture will allow for a lean approach? You know, what are like the best practices for determining if your culture can support lean startup? Uh, you know, I, I think most cultures can't. So you have to change the culture. Uh, so I, you can't. You can't go find one that has the culture that's already primed. Uh, you know, uh, Intuit's a great uh, case study for for adopting lean startup, and it, it's over the last couple of years they've trained over a thousand employee employees using you know lean startup workshops. And so, would you say that their culture was a lean startup culture two years ago? No, not really. I mean, I, I think that. Uh, uh, you know, Scott uh, Scott Cook was an amazing. You know, he was into design thinker, and and so there was definitely some leadership there that was was ready for it. Uh, and again, there were people that were actually practicing it. But changing the culture is what's required, and it's hard, and it takes a long time. And so I think that if you're a person inside of an organization that is ready for this type of stuff, the first thing you should do is go find like-minded people. And I think that that's actually how you you start. Uh, you start the process. Um, so again, I, I really go back to you. Eventually, what you need is a is a C level executive that's that's going to be behind you. But then you have to find people that are like minded, and you start doing this stuff yourself. And and it's sort of like uh, you know, I'm talking to entrepreneurs. Uh, I had Brad Feld speaking, and and all the entrepreneurs are asking questions about what whether they should do this or whether they should do that. And and Brad said, you know, there's there's no vice president of startups in San Diego, right? You have to go do it. And so I think that it's actually the same thing inside of the large enterprises. And I'm not, and I'm not saying go do something that's going to get you in trouble. But on the other hand, you can't wait for you know, some magic to happen, some external force that says, okay, this company now is prepared for lean startup culture. You actually have to go and make the change yourself. Uh, actually, let me go as far to say, you should go get in trouble. You should actually be subversive. <laughs> no, and, and I'm sort of half joking here, but, but I think uh, we've all seen this, uh, where Lean Startup has managed to uh, take root and flower is where initially you had some uh, aggressive early adopters act a little subversively. You know, look, I, I'm, if you have a, a mortgage and a family, I'm not telling you to risk your, you know, your, your career on adopting Lean Startup, but uh, if you're passionate about making chains, you, like like you Brad pointed out, you can't wait for permission to do this stuff. You got to start doing it, uh, uh, and you got to start doing it intelligently. And, and part of that is hacking the the actual internal political system, and and uh, that's very difficult, obviously. Um, but it's part of that journey, and there is no, you know, lean startup culture, you know, from day <laughs> zero, right? Yeah. You know, I think one thing people get confused about a culture is where does culture come from. Like if your culture sucks today, how did it come to be that way? My point of view is that today's culture is the artifact of the processes you used in the past. So when people say, is my culture ready for Lean Startup? The answer is simultaneously yes and no. 
Like, exactly. no, your culture today is not set up for a lean startup because it's derived from a process that is not lean startup compatible. But on the other hand, it's ready because if you can, if you were able to create this culture, you could create a different culture if you're willing to pilot a new process somewhere. And I have a diagram in the book, accountability, process, culture, people in that order. If you first change the accountability systems that you use to, to uh, drive performance, you know, performance evaluation in your company, then you can have teams that are, that are self-organized, cross-functional teams that are focused on a business objective rather than a functional objective. And those teams can adopt processes like we're talking about, minimum viable product pivots, split tests, et cetera. Those teams pilot and incubate a new culture, and that culture allows you to, to attract and retain the best people. And you mentioned Intuit. I tell a story from Intuit in the book about a team that built a product called SnapTax, which is a very disruptive uh, product to Intuit's current tax prep business. And I won't get into it all now, but they did like a lot of lean startup things really right. If you looked at the resumes of the people who were on that team before they were on this team, you would have said, those aren't innovators. Those are like regular old big company people in the regular old big company culture. Yep. But all of a sudden, given the opportunity to do something new, creative, and empowering, they discovered the entrepreneur within, if you don't mind uh, my cheesy phrase. Like, they actually <laughs> became incredibly entrepreneurial. And so like, when I mean, people tell me, oh, our culture could never do that. Our people aren't good enough. I, I call bullshit on that every time. If you're willing to change the systems and support structures, you can get this outcome, uh, even in places that don't seem like they're very entrepreneurial. It's up to the individual to start the change of the culture. I think that's absolutely right. And for the people who have a, um, boy, the questions are just pouring in, and I'm like so excited to get to the next question. It's like hard to even finish the previous question. So just, <laughs> just suffice to say, um, people who care about the legacy that they leave behind for the next generation of managers of their company, like to me, when you're in a hundred year old company, I, I was one, I was with a company recently that has a hundred year history in a certain business, and they are facing an existential disruption. And I, I sat down with them. And I said, listen. From what I can tell, you are on track to be the last set of managers of this business. You inherited a thriving business from your forebears, and you're going to pass on nothing to the next generation of managers. Is that really satisfying to you? And they were really upset. At first, they were like, you don't understand, you know, blah, blah. We're going to do all the usual objections. But when they finally right. got it, they said, oh, my God, we got to do something. And they, like, I would have said they have no culture of innovation. They're screwed, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, like... When the motivation is there, they start to make some changes in accountability process. Like, amazing things are starting to happen there. Okay, we're getting like the same question over and over again. Like, very critical. So let's. We've been talking about high level buy in corporate all stuff. We get to talk tactics for a moment. The most common thing that people talk about with lean startup is the minimum viable product or MVP. So here's the question: How does a company with a history for excellence put out embarrassingly early MVPs with real prices, real contracts? You know, without getting in trouble with customers without causing embarrassment to the corporate brand, without getting in trouble from finance and legal, you know, how do you manage that, that dilemma? Yeah. So I love this question. And matter of fact, this, if, if you can answer this question successfully, this is how you can start getting buy-in. The reason is, uh, that your managers are scared of lean startup. They're scared of startups, right? And really you can't, just turn your company into a startup. And Eric was talking about lean manufacturing a little bit ago. The reason why some American companies failed in their lean manufacturing changeovers is because they said, okay, now we're lean, right? And they tried to flip it overnight and they failed. They failed miserably. And so it's the same thing with lean startup. You can't flip a switch and now you're a lean startup and you can't change the core business into a lean startup. So the managers inside the core business have real fears. They have a fears that you're exactly talking about. You, you have fears around brand. You have fears around customer support. You have fears around legal and regulatory issues. You have HR issues. And so uh, the core business has to be protected from the startup. The core business has to be protected from the startup. So this, in, in my mind, we... Uh, we separate out these startups. They, they need to exist in a different place for the time being so that these startups, these lean startups are being protected from the two questions around uh, return on investment and, and the core business is being protected from the startup. So in the lean startup, you, you, you can use an alternative brand 
There are guidelines that the core business can tell you in terms of how you're allowed to interact with your customers. There's guidelines that legal can say that it, as long as you follow these guidelines, you do not have to go and get permission from these internal organizations. And so, yes, you're not launching a minimum viable product to all of your core business customers. That's a no-no. So you have to keep these separate. And then the, the, the lean startup acts like a new startup. You have to go find your own customers to experiment with. You've got your own brand. So you have to think like a lean startup. You've got your validated learning with your with your, the customer development that you've been doing with your own market segment. You're not going to your core business. I know everybody else wants to jump in on this, so I'll stop there. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to make it really quick. One of the things that Brent uh, and I have seen is when you have an internal startup, people do this um, <clears throat> sort of helicopter parenting and almost uh, uh, you know sort of spoon feeding the little birdie in the nest, and it's actually I think builds a very weak startup, right? As Brian said, the startup itself has to go find a new segment, has to go create its own experiments, has to figure out how to do the sales and marketing as well as the technology, and uh, it can't just simply kind of run to the core business and get all these problems solved for it. Because then what you get is get you know you get sort of the like the, the children of helicopter parents that that can't fend for themselves, and ultimately, if it's a real innovation that has real value that creates real value for for uh, customers, it has to fend for itself. It has to be a standalone um, a business case that makes sense. Yeah, so it's funny. So let's talk about the subsidiary issue just real quick, just straight up. Because the common common thing I hear is people say, well. In order to do this, in order to have a separate brand and everything, I have to have a legal subsidiary spin out from my corporation. They go to legal and try to get that done, and they don't have the, um, they don't, they can't get that done. And they say, well, because yeah. I can't do a subsidiary, therefore I can't be a startup, therefore I can't make this work. And I think that's really wrong. I, I've seen a lot of teams do lean startup experimentation uh, under conditions that are not ideal. You know, they're not a subsidiary, they're not a spin out. They're just um, doing them in quiet. Because the great thing about doing an MVP is, first of all, if customers don't like it, but they care enough to complain, that's actually great news. Most of the time when you do an MVP, nobody even cares. Like, no one even notices. Zero <laughs> customers show up. Like, so you have launch day, and then nothing happens. Because you've got the, your value proposition is so wrong, nobody cares. So that doesn't harm the brand. If people complain, but you kept the scale of the experiment small, and right, MVP is about containing the scope of the experimentation, so the cost of failure is low then you can make it right for those customers that complain. Like, you can send them a hand-engraved letterpress apology. Every single one personally delivered to their house by you, if that ever happens. Um, so, you know, like, I'll, I'll give you an example. I was talking to a team that was um, working on launching a product that was working in the United States, but they're going to take it international. So they're doing translations. And their, their a formal business plan is to simultaneously launch the localized version of this product in like 25 international markets simultaneously for a big global launch. Uh, so you guys can imagine how well that's going to go. <laughs> and that's, of course, you know, a year in the future and they've got a huge budget and this whole team. And I'm like, listen, why don't we just double check that we're going to be able to make money with the same product in all these different markets? Like, let's send an advanced team, special ops, right? Like, just take a small amount of our budget before we start running major advertising campaigns in these markets, let's go sell a few pre-orders just to double check that, in fact, the market is where we think. So That's, we, not, that's we, not fun, Eric. No, right. It's like when I want to do a big marketing <laughs> campaign, it's like, let's, listen, I'm sure the campaign is going to be successful, but let's just double check. This may be my most common tactic I use for anyone who, you know, companies say have a belief. They have, here's my business case. Here's my belief. Here's what's going to work. Okay. Let, I'm sure you're right, but let's just double check, you know. If before a million people can buy your thing, a hundred people have to buy it. Before a hundred people have to buy it, one person has to buy it. So let's just go sell it to one person, be sure. So team starts to work together. What would an MVP look like? And we come up with the idea of using Facebook ads to send a hundred people max to a pre-order website that's in the local language that we can do in like one day. And you go to that website and it just says, here's how much the product costs and what it does. Sign up here to pre-order. Give us your credit card. We're not even going to charge your credit card. In fact, we're going to throw the credit card number away and just give you the product for free when it comes out. The team like, gets excited about the learning and they said, oh, hold on, hold on, wait, stop, stop. Legal will never go for this. Think about all the laws about international credit card holding and you know, if you hold someone's credit card number and there's a breach of privacy or you don't have, you have to give them a refund, like uh, the audits and the thing, legal will never go for it. And I, I'm sitting there saying, okay, listen, you say legal, but who do you mean? Whose decision is this? 
And they're like, Yo, you know, legal. I'm like, legal is not a person. What's the name of the person who you think would not oppose it? Listen, this is going to have to go to the general counsel for our division. Okay. Do you have his phone number? Is he in the corporate directory? Let's call him. And this team is like, ah, <laughs> let's, call, let's just call him and ask. So I get him on the phone with the team and they, here, here's literally what they say. And this, is, this goes to like, are you really seriously trying to do this or not? They call up the lawyer and they say, hey, do you mind if we, without any security, take a bunch of customers' credit cards and like not do any of our normal procedures and do it in a really unsafe way? Lawyer's like, are you kidding me? Of course not. You can't do that. The liability, you know, and I'm like, stop, time out. I'm sorry. What they didn't mention was, how would you feel if we limited this experiment to 100 credit cards total? And the guy's like, why are you wasting my time with this phone call? <laughs> you can do whatever you want with 100 credit cards. This is a $30 product. The total liability of the company is $3,000. This phone call costs more than $3,000 to get me to weigh in on this topic. <laughs> Like do whatever you want for the hundred. Like you know, I just go. Do, this is like the guy that everyone's terrified of. The legal guy. He's like, please run the experiment, and if people like it, call me back. The team was stunned, and we actually work with that that uh, that guy, and we said, listen, why don't we create some guidelines so that innovation teams within the company? And you guys were just talking about this. Like, can we create a one-page document that says, here's what you have the freedom to do before you have to call legal, right? Like, if it's a hundred credit cards, just do it. If it's a thousand or ten thousand, like. Call us up at that point and get permission. Does that make sense? Okay. A um, lot of questions about um, really how do we get buy-in from the top. So you guys see this all the time. Some relatively junior person reads a book. It says, hey, the lean entrepreneur is awesome. I want to be like fake Grimlock. I'm going to smash the walls down with my forehead. Uh-oh. How am I going to get my boss on board? Like what's the plan? I, so how do you, you know do it? Holidays are coming up. You buy your bosses, buy the C-suite Eric Reese's book. I'm serious. It's you know I actually that's it's it's the way to do it. And then buy your team, you know, some copies of our book too. No, but seriously, uh, you need to get uh, you need to get these people to see. They need to see it. They need to have the epiphany. And I think that you know, you going in there with a PowerPoint about lean startup stuff is, is probably not going to work. And, and I think that if they sit down over the holidays and they read Reese's book that, that you, you just might get that epiphany. You know, I'll tell you one, one story. Um, I, I think it's critically important that you pilot the success and prove that it works. So just one of my stories, one of my biggest corporate clients, the way it happened was a mid, you know, a mid-level executive read the book and thought it made sense, had me come in and do a talk. And we kind of like worked our way up the chain of reporting. So like we did a talk for her group, then we did a talk like for her boss's group. And then we, you know, kind of like, just kind of like, just kind of socializing the idea until it finally got to a level of seniority that somebody said, all right, I, prove to me that this works in our company. So, you know, basically the CEO of the company says, I'm, I'm interested, do something. So we we run a pilot project. We basically bring a team that, that was specifically chosen because the problem they're trying to solve is incredibly difficult and the company had had really struggled to get a reasonable plan out of this team. And we, we really worked intensively with them, me and the kind of middle manager in partnership, coaching this team to try to show a before and after. And we took this team from your classic five-year business plan, you know, billions of dollars five years from now to a plan where they're doing an MVP every year. This is in a business with a multi-year, um, you know, multi-year development cycle. So MVP in a year is a really big deal. And so we showed those results. We showed that progress. We, we predicted what the outcome was going to be ahead of time. Right? We didn't say, hey, we're going to make you $100 million overnight. We said, we can get this team to be faster to market, more learning from customers, et cetera. CEO saw that result and said, okay, now do it with four teams. Okay, now let's do it with 10 teams. And we wound up doing maybe 25 teams coaching them. And then the executive team got together and said, okay, this seems to be working. Now we want to roll it out company-wide. And now we're busy training, uh, you know, the top 5,000 managers in the company. So, like, you know, it's that combination of, like, bottoms-up grassroots results with that corporate sponsorship that can really accelerate this rollout. So one other, let me, one other hack that I might throw in there is choose your pilot program as an internal process that you're, that you're uh, going to disrupt or innovate mm -hmm. on. And so there's less risk about you know the MVPs to the to the wild or or all of these different uh, guidelines, 
is if you can do innovation on an internal process that improves the company's performance and the and the CEO sees that, then that might be a hack to uh, uh, to to show results without a lot of risk. Yeah, I've done a lot of HR, ERP, like annual report, financial stuff. Like uh, that, those you can, those are startups just like uh, products are startups, and yep. you can show results, usually powerful results. You know, most IT departments are not used to having a customer service mentality, legal, HR sourcing, like the functional silos are not used to thinking of the people who work in the company with them as their customers. So just making that simple change, I've seen amazing results be driven uh, because everyone just assumes, oh, those IT guys are grouchy. They'll never be nice. You know, it's like they're just bad people and you change them into a startup with a customer service mentality and boom, all of a sudden. It's another um, artifact of those silos. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. The system is driving the bad behavior. It's, it's the fundamental attribution error for those that know the psychology literature. We assume that the behavior is due to people's fundamental attributes rather than to something about the circumstance. Of course, when it's our behavior, it's the opposite. I am a good person, but it was a bad situation. But when someone else does something wrong, they're a bad person. All right, listen, guys, we are running, we are rapidly running out of time. And there are so many amazing questions pouring in here that we're just not going to be able to answer. So, look, we're all on Twitter. You hit us up. You can use the Lean Startup hashtag, and we'll, we'll all see every tweet that, that goes there. Of course, you can come to the conference. We'll all be there uh, discussing this with 1,000 other people. Um, but I thought maybe we just wrap up with, uh, with one last question. Uh, I like this one that came in from the, uh, from the audience. Oh, and they're reminding me, we will do a follow-up blog post uh, where we'll post the video with this. Uh, and we also, three of us will be around. We'll, we'll take some answers in the questions. Oh, sorry, sure. We'll answer some questions in the comments for that post if people want to check it out. That'll, that'll be on my blog uh, at StartupLessonsLearned.com. Okay, uh, question, is, I like this one from the audience. What's the first step after reading your books other than reorganizing <laughs> the whole company that a company can take? I thought that was, that was a good one. So, all right, so you did that. It's, it's Christmas time. You gave everyone a copy of the book. They came back and they liked it. and They said, okay, I'm ready to go. What is that first step? Well, so I think... I think Eric just outlined the first step with that pilot program. So pull a team together of like-minded people, find an internal process that you can innovate on or an existing uh, idea. You probably have this huge backlogs of ideas that are untested. If you have to work on your own time, you'll do it. If you have to work it on the weekend, you'll do it. Run an experiment. That would be the first step is run an experiment. I got nothing to add. I got nothing to add other than be sub, be subversive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I always feel bad because I come into I speak to corporate audiences quite often now, and I of course or encourage them as you do to be subversive. But I always add this disclaimer, and maybe we'll close on this note. I'm just visiting. Easy for me to say. You have to live here, right? So so I we can make all kinds of suggestions, but look, fundamentally, we are outsiders. We're part timers. We're not. We don't live with the legacy of this business. So on the one hand. That might say, you know, we can't tell you to be difficult. You might say, oh, well, I don't want to be fired. I, I'm, I'm scared, you know, and I, I actually have tremendous respect for people who say, you know, I don't think my culture will support me being subversive. I can't do it. You know, I got a family to feed. Okay, I got that. But think about all the managers that worked at Kodak or Nokia or, you know, pick your favorite you know, Blackberry, like pick your favorite company that has had a total collapse in our in living memory and say, um, how... How would it feel to be the manager who was there, who saw the disruption coming and did nothing about it? First of all, is that actually a good path to having a long-term career? Like if you got to feed a family and make your mortgage, like if your company collapses while you're there, is that really going to help you? I don't know. So I feel like it's, it's almost irresponsible to just kind of like put your head down and say, whatever, like I work for a great institution and I'm going to let it crumble. Uh, under my stewardship. And I know people can feel when they're not at the very top, a lack of power, a lack of ability to change. But, but what we have seen all three of us in our work with, with entrepreneurs inside companies is um, once someone makes this you know, mental switch, you can have tremendous impact even if you know, you're not especially important in the org chart because this is something that has to be incubated grounds up. And the future leaders of companies, I think, are going to be people who today started to learn with these techniques because what we're talking about here is nothing less than a full-scale paradigm change in the management culture, management philosophy of modern companies. So would you rather be an early adopter of that or you know, have somebody else take that lead? I, I kind of leave it to you as a question. So all right, we are going to wrap up. Um, 
how do we get more uh, information? So uh, do you have, if people want to get more information from you guys, if people want to talk to you about what you guys do, what, what, what are the resources they should check out? So they should go to uh, movestheneedle.com, which, uh, which is our organization that runs workshops for uh, enterprises. Um, we're both on uh, Twitter, at PV and at Brant Cooper. Uh, and of course, LinkedIn and Facebook. And uh, what's the best email, Patrick? Uh, I think hello at leanentrepreneur.co. Hello at leanentrepreneur.co would be the best, easiest one to reach us at. And of course, you can meet us all in person at the Lean Startup Conference. That's leanstartup.co. We will be December 9th through 11th in San Francisco. Um, and I think that is going to wrap it up. So for everybody who tuned in and, and stayed a little late with us, you know, really appreciate it. Please hit us up on Twitter, et cetera. And uh, Brent, Patrick, thank you so much for your time, sharing your insights and keeping it real. Thank you, Eric. All right. Thanks, thanks everybody. Bye, guys. Thanks to everyone for joining us today. This wraps up our show. Please join us again for the next webcast, Lean Startup for Growing Companies, on October 22nd. In the meantime, visit leanstartup.co for more information on the Lean Startup Conference held on December 9 to 11 in San Francisco. 